let me have you turn in your Bible to James chapter 5. And as you turn to James chapter 5, I want to point out something that uh, you need to be looking for as we sort of make our way back uh, to the final uh, segment of James. And this is true in a lot of Bible books as you start really reading these books over and over. So I challenged you at the beginning of our series together some 20 or 18 weeks ago rather that you read the book of James at least once every week as you prepare your own heart to come. Five simple chapters. Uh, It may take you all of 20 minutes to read. And as you read this book slowly and you read it repeatedly and you read it over and over and, and your mind starts to catch the way James is thinking, what you will discover in James is also true about Paul. And that is at the end of the book, after the halfway mark, you will begin to start picking up things in the last half of the book that James was getting you ready for in the first half of the book. So he will mention something in the first half of the book, and you'll have it in your head, but it it won't sort of jump out at you. You might even say, now, I wonder why he put it there. I wonder what that was all about. And then when you get toward the end of the book, he brings it back up again, and he's going to almost say, now, do you remember when we talked about this way back here? I'm going to bring this up, and I want us to look at this really closely. Well, we have something like that today. And so I want you to keep your finger in chapter 5, and I want you to go back to chapter 2. And I want to show this to you, and then I'm going to use that as a springboard for three questions that are going to lead us into four big ideas that James is going to give us today. So you remember in chapter 2, he is building off of what a living faith does. All right, he, he's talked about a living faith in chapter 1, and we noted that a living faith is what? It is wholehearted, it is single-focused, it is fully trusting. Oh, you guys are getting it. Let's say it all together, shall we? A living faith is wholehearted, it is single-focused, and it is fully trusting. And James says in chapter 1, here is how that kind of faith matures. Here's how it grows. Here's how God develops that in you. He uses trials. And then he gives you an opportunity to display the loyalty of that faith by giving you wisdom from above that if you will embrace and you will follow, will allow you and help you and strengthen you to resist temptations. And that's what you find in the second part of chapter 1. And then he reminds uh, the readers, us, that God gave us a good gift from heaven. And that good gift is a word of truth. And that word of truth is what brought you to life spiritually. That's in chapter 1, verse 18. And then he's going to tell you what to do with that word of truth. You need to be quick to hear. You need to be slow to speak. You need to be slow to wrath. You need to receive with meekness this engrafted word that brought you to life. You need to read it carefully. You need to study it regularly. But you can't just read it and study it. You can't can't just be like the guy who peers intently into the mirror and then walks away and does nothing with what he saw. And James says that's really a huge problem in our lives. We can know a lot about the Bible. We can read the Bible every day. We can have all kinds of Bibles on our shelf. But we have to do more than read it. We actually have to do whatever 
God is saying in that word. And James says at the end of chapter 1, when you do this, the religion that you practice, he's talking about the outward practice of your faith, the religion that you practice will be acceptable to God and it will be useful to men. And so he comes right into chapter 2 and he's going to say to them, now let's put this to a test. Let's see if the word that's in your heart and the word that is uh, that gift from God that you've been reading is actually working in your life. And he goes right after a problem. And the problem is the sin of partiality. And we spent a whole Sunday morning looking at that sin. And the sin of partiality had to do with two visitors or two people who came to church. And they looked different. One of the visitors came and he was dressed in brilliant raiment, light, light colored raiment, the, the idea of shining, brilliant white raiment. And he had many gold rings on his finger. And there was another man that came to the church that morning and he didn't look anything like that. He didn't have any brilliant garments. He didn't have any gold rings. In fact, he looked very, very humble. And his garments were the garments of a laborer who had nothing else to wear. We talked about the fact that in the first century, many people didn't have four or five changes of clothing. Only the very rich had that. And really, if you were just sort of a, a, a general member of the population, you might have two garments that you could interchange. But if you were really poor and you were living day to day, you had one garment and you wore that all the time. And that's the image that James gives you. There is one of these dear folks who loves God and he's coming to your midst and he only has one garment and it looks like he's been wearing that garment for a long time. And when those two men came in, you paid attention to one of the men and you honored that man and you greeted the other man, but you didn't honor him and you really didn't pay attention to him. That's the idea here. And we remember that because we spent quite a bit of time on that. But there's a detail in the text that I want to show you. It's in chapter 2, and it has to do with this rich man, okay? Now, I want you to look here at verse 8, I'm sorry, at verse 6. James says, when you do this, you have dishonored one of the men. You've treated him shamefully, right? You've you've done something wicked here. You've you've been wicked in in that you shamed one of God's people. And then he talks about the rich. He says this, are not the rich, this man that you're honoring, are not the rich the ones who are oppressing you? And the idea there is that this is going on right now. This this was actually happening. These people are doing something to you. They are oppressing you. And they are dragging you into court. And they are blaspheming the honorable name of, by which you were called. And when we get to chapter 5, James is going to talk to these people who've been doing that. And so that's the connection I want you to make, okay? And so this morning, we need to answer the question that James is raising and pointing to, and that question is this. What do we do as Christians when in the course of, of living out our faith, our wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith, the way God told us to, 
we encounter fierce opposition like they were encountered. What happens when our faith that God has been growing through trials, that the Word of God has been strengthening, what happens when that faith runs into a prolonged, painful season of opposition that involves immeasurable agony, it might involve irreversible loss, and it might even cost you your physical life. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews says is going on in Hebrews chapter 10 with believers who after they believed in the very kinds of cities that these believers are in were being dragged out of their homes. Their homes were being sold out from under them. They lost their jobs. They were being exiled from their cities. And some of them, uh, the writer of Hebrews pointed out, some of you are about to be martyred. Some of you are going to lose your lives. And so how do we live and display our living faith like that? How do we do that? How do you sow seeds of grace in that kind of hard soil? I mean, how do you withstand that kind of pressure? I'm not talking about the kind of pressure that comes because you had a car accident and your car got dinged up. And that's a pressure, believe me. Or I'm not really even talking about the pressure of an illness or, you know, somebody got upset at you. I'm talking about the kind of pressure that James is talking about here where God's people are living faithfully. They're displaying this living faith the way God intended for them to display it. And he put them in a very hard place because that's where he needed the light. That's where he wanted the light. And he came to these believers and he said, I have a place where I'm going to put you. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And the part of the earth where I have called you to be light is a very dark place. And it is a very hard place. And it has the potential of crushing you. And some of you are being crushed. How do we walk faithfully when God seems silent or even absent in the face of our this weight that is just crushing down on us. And James does something in the letter. Here's what he does. He comforts them. He comforts them. And by comfort, I'm not talking about just saying kind and gracious and encouraging words like, you know, I'm so sorry you're going through that. And I... I Brother, I, I can't imagine how you're feeling. Please know we're praying for you. We all talk this way, and that's entirely appropriate. We should talk that way. But that's not what James is doing here. So we need to ask ourselves three questions, and then we want to see four things that, that James puts in this text. And I really want to make sure we get them because we're going to need them. We are going to need these in our lives So here's the first question. What exactly does James mean by comfort? Pastor Sam, when you say James comforts us, what do you mean by that? And so the term that James uses for this is in chapter 5, verse 8. So let me just drop you into that little verse, and then we'll come back out. All right, chapter 5, verse 8, he says, um, no wonder I can't find it now in 1 Peter, 
uh, in chapter 5, verse 8, he says this, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And that word establish is our word. That word is our word this morning. What does it mean to establish? The term establish means two things. It's got two ideas to it. Idea number one is that you strengthen something from the inside so that when pressure comes on it, it isn't crushed. The other meaning is that you strengthen and stabilize something on the outside so that when pressure comes against it, it doesn't get tumbled down. So just like those two cans, the illustration of those two cans this morning is the illustration of something being strengthened on the inside. There was something inside one of the cans that wasn't inside the other. And whatever it was inside, it sustained the can under fairly significant pressure. And that's the idea that James is using here. If you've ever seen a huge radio tower that goes way up high, uh, I used to be a part of a ministry, and I was over that ministry, and we had a radio station, so I had to learn a lot about radio stations and how to run them. And we had towers, and the towers were always getting blown down. And so the radio signal would leave, and so we'd have to go down there and figure out how to get the towers back up or something would be going on. And so I learned that you have to stabilize the tower. And you stabilize the tower with these big big wires that come down and are anchored down into the ground. Think of an oil rig out in the ocean, and there is something that goes deep down to the ocean floor and is driven down into the ocean floor and everything rests on it so that when the typhoon comes or the hurricane comes, in both cases with the radio tower or the oil rig, they're not blown off course, they're not blown down. And James uses this word to say to you, you're going to need to do this to your heart or you're going to get crushed by the trial, you're going to get blown off course by the temptation you're going to be destroyed and destabilized by the persecution. So James says, here's what I mean by comfort. You need to stabilize and internally strengthen your inner man so that it isn't crushed and it doesn't crumble and it isn't blown off course. You see that? All right, that's question number one. Question number two is, so how does James do this? How does James help us do that? And the answer is he uses words. He uses words. And I thought about this a lot because I've often wondered what is it about James's words that have such an impact on people and my words don't? What's the difference between the words you're reading on the page in these five chapters and even the words that are coming out of my mouth about them? What's the difference between those two words? Because if you can identify that difference, you will understand immediately why these words are so different and have such power than even the words I'm saying to you about them. And the answer is, James's words are what? What's the word we use for it? They're inspired. These are God's words. 
whatever James is penning in these chapters came directly from God. And because they are God's words, they can do things that my words about them can't. I am so grateful that you come every Sunday and you have been listening and receiving my words about James. But do you understand that my words are powerless to change you? They're just powerless to change you. I'm th- you have been so kind in your emails and in your texts and even in our conversations about this series. But, but you know this and I know this and we'd be fools not to acknowledge it. My words about James are not the same thing as God's words that James wrote down. And those words are the only words that have the ability to change you. I might give you a story about James. I might give you an illustration that might help you. But my words have no power to help you. God has to take his words and he has to use them to strengthen you. And you know, Psalm 19 has something interesting to say about this. We don't have time to read it all today. But look at verse, in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, we read things like, These words have the power to revive our soul. David said, I love the law of God. Why? Because it can revive my soul. It can make me wise. It can deliver me from sinful foolishness. It can bring joy to my burdened soul and afflicted heart. It can enlighten my darkened eyes. It warns me from the wrong path. These words are completely righteous. They're everlasting. And in keeping of them, in keeping of these words, not my words or anybody else's words, but in keeping these words, God says, there is great reward. And David went on to say, they are sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. There's something wrong if you like my words more than you like God's words. Wouldn't you agree with that? There's something wrong when you would rather hear my words about James than read James. I hope my words are helpful in helping you see James and understand James, but they are absolutely powerless. And the minute I start thinking that my words are what's bringing about any change, I have just unseated God's words. So you have to see that in your own heart because until you do that, you're going to be like that Sprite can, right? You, you can talk about the Bible. You can, um, you know, do things with the Bible. You can go find a devotional aid that kind of chews it up and prepares it for you so you don't have to do your own work. But until you leave all of that aside and you go straight into that book and you start reading it for yourself, And there's not a one of us in this room that shouldn't be doing that, right? There's not a one of us in this room that shouldn't have our Bible open as often as we can. Maybe you can't do it every single day, but there ought to be in your life a time when you are going to sit down for 20 minutes or 25 minutes, and it's you and your Bible and the Holy Spirit, and you are saying, God, I need food I need to understand what you put in this book. And you can't do that to check a box, right? I mean, there's some churches where, man, you got to get into a Bible reading plan and then you get a little prize at the end of that or people take pride, oh, I read the Bible every day and here's my devotional pad. I'm not talking about that. I'm not, that, I'm, 
you have got to realize that in the war you're in, this is your life. This is your strength. This is the air that God is breathing into you. And it's like anything else. You know, there are times in my life where uh, a season of life where it gets really busy and, you know, I mean, we're just rolling out and, uh, and, 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 and I don't have time to eat breakfast. And so I grab a little pile of trail mix in a little bag somewhere and I stick it in my pocket and I say, this got to hold me till I can get to a meal. But if the trail mix ever becomes the way you eat and you rarely go to the meal, you have put yourself exactly where James tells you not to go. If your primary thing of how you read your Bible is to get the daily bread out and read the daily bread and answer the three questions and then you go your way and that's all you do, you don't open up the Bible by yourself and set that daily bread aside. As good as the daily bread is, and there's a place for that, and we're thankful for people who invest in those things. But if that replaces your reading the Bible and that becomes the way you read the Bible, you are going to be like that can that gets crushed. And it will ultimately cost you dearly spiritually. And that's what James is saying here. You have to get into the Word. And so that's the third thing. What is it about the words of James? So what do we find in James's words that are going to give these people comfort? And the answer is two things. James is going to point you in this chapter that we're in to a comfort that comes from a very powerful promise that God has made. And in order to understand the promise, you're going to have to start at the beginning of the promise and you're going to have to read all the way to the end of the promise. But James is going to say there is a very specific thing that will comfort you in a scenario where you are facing unbearable pressure and you have experienced unimaginable losses, there is a promise of God that will comfort you. Now, there's a lot of promises of God that comfort us, but James is going to say there's one that you need to think about, and we're going to get there. It's, it's the coming of the Lord. There's something about the coming of the Lord that James says, strengthen yourself, right? Strengthen yourself, verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 8. Be patient, establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. There's the promise James points to. And there's something about that promise that is going to strengthen us for this. And then James says there's a second thing that's going to strengthen you, and that is the example of past people of God who were faithful in pressure. And he's going to introduce us to two more friends of God. Back in chapter 2, we met two friends of God. We met Abraham, the friend of God, and we met Rahab, the friend of God. We're going to meet two more in this passage. We're going to meet the prophets who endured, and we're going to meet Job who endured. So that's what James does. James gives you comfort, and the comfort he gives is an inner strengthening of your inner man that will allow you not to crumble or not to be crushed when pressure comes. And that comfort is going to come from a certain set of words. And the words are the five chapters that make up James. And what gives these words the ability to provide that kind of strength when other words can't, including 
anybody's like me or anybody. The, the, the only thing that gives these words the power to strengthen us is their inspiration. These are God's very own words. And so there are two things in James chapter 5 that James says, all right, now when you want to enter man, when you want to put iron in your inner man so that it doesn't crumble or doesn't get crushed, when you want to tie it down so that it doesn't blow away when opposition comes, here's what you need to do. You need to put the promise of the coming of the Lord inside you. And, and I want to show you two people who found that to be true. I want to remind you of the prophets, and I want to remind you of Job. All right, so that's the context. Now, we're going to start today. We may not finish today, but we're going to start, and we're going to look at four things in this text that James uses to put iron in the soul of people who are having to sow seeds of grace in very hard places and in very dark spaces. He's going to use four things to help them, all right? So here we go. Thing number one is in verses one through six, where James says, all right, now I'm going to put some iron in your heart. I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to strengthen you. And here's the strength that I'm going to give you. I want to remind you of God's promise to bring judgment on the ones who oppress you. You're not supposed to be the one getting vengeance on them, but there is someone who knows exactly what is going on. There's someone who sees what is happening, and there's someone who hears what is happening, and he has put you in that place and in that space so that your living faith will be a testimony even to these oppressors. And what is going to give iron to your soul in that hard place And in that dark space is the assurance that God has not forgotten what is happening. He is not ignorant of what is happening. So let's let's notice what James does here. Now, let me me point something out. In the six verses that make up uh, the opening paragraph here, he doesn't urge any of these people he's about to talk to to repent. All through the book, James has been urging people to repent. He's been urging people to humble their heart. He's been urging people to um, submit to God. He's been urging people to cleanse their hands and unify their heart. That's the whole point of chapter 4. And when we get into chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, it's unusual, but there's no call to repentance here. So let me ask you a question. Do you think God wants people like this to repent? Yes or no? The answer is what? Yes. So why doesn't he ask them to do that? And I wrestle with that. I'm like, why in the world is he talking to people like this who desperately need to repent when he's been over here calling us to repent all the time? I mean, all through the book, we're supposed to repent. And he's given us multiple occasions and multiple illustrations and multiple commands to repent. James anticipates that the Christian life will be a journey that is filled up with repentance. It begins with repentance. And that repentance brings the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God in us begins to work on us so that when we sin against somebody else or we sin against God, we actually what? Repent. One of the diagnostic questions that is very helpful to ask a a person who's struggling is, when was the last time you repented? 
Can you remember the last time the Spirit of God convicted you and you repented? And repentance, biblically, isn't just changing your behavior, is it? It's got to start there, but if you've sinned against God, you can't just change your behavior. You have to do what? You have to repent, and you have to make things right with who? With God. And then, if you've sinned against somebody else, you have another step to do. You have to go and make it right with the person you sinned against. Right? Didn't Jesus say this? Jesus said, if you have ought against your brother, even if you're coming to worship me, leave your gift there and go make it right with your brother. Sometimes we get the idea that I can just repent and never say anything to anybody about it. I'll just go be different. And we satisfy ourselves as though God is happy with that, but we're too proud to humble ourselves and actually go and say, look, I wronged you, I offended you. And James is filled up with that. You can't get away from that. God is moving through James to bring us to become good, frequent repenters. And that's where he's at. So here we have this chapter, and there's no repentance in this chapter. So I thought about this, and I got some help. Sometimes you have a question, and you can't answer it, so I went for some help. And I have about 10 friends that are studying the book of James with me, and they have been studying James for a lot longer than I have. And so I went, and I checked with my, I don't know, five or six of my 10 friends that I work, and they live in my office. My 10 friends live on a little bookshelf right next to my desk. And when I have a question about James, I want to go and I want to find out what they saw, and then I'm going to come back here and check. And one of my friends that I I study with said this, James is not actually talking to these people directly because they're not in church. He is talking to the people in church who are being persecuted, and he's telling them what's going to happen to them as a group. And he's using the first person to make it vivid. In other words, let's say that you and I were being persecuted by a group of people, and I got up, and I said, let me tell you what God has to say to our oppressors, and then I started talking like you were the oppressors. And you said, Pastor, wait a minute. No, no, no. I'm not the oppressor. And I go, I know, I know. I'm not talking to you. But you are. You're saying, you know, you're saying things like, come now, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Pastor, I'm not that person. I know, I know. I'm not talking to you. Well, who are you talking to? To them. But it sounds like you're talking to me. No, I'm helping you understand what God is saying to them. And that's what James is doing in these six verses. So we are getting to listen in to James as he talks to the people of God in his day who are being persecuted, and he says, let me tell you what God has to say to your persecutors. And here's what God has to say. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. God says to his people, now I want you to know something. These people that seem so rich and so powerful and so influential in your cities that are dragging you into the courts, that are blaspheming the name that you have been called by, God has something to say to them. And here it is. Now, let's ask ourselves who these people are. And whoever they are, we met them in James chapter 2. That's why I took you back there at the very beginning of our time together. 
They attended regularly the synagogues in their cities. That's what we read in James chapter 2. They were going into a synagogue, an assembly place. They were wealthy and ostentatious. They possessed riches, fine linen garments, much gold and silver, and many, many luxurious treasures, very similar to the brilliant garments and the many gold rings of the person we saw in chapter 2. They were doing the same thing. These rich people in chapter 5 are doing the very same thing. They are persecuting the, the Christians in their cities, and they are being dragged into court. That's the idea of, in chapter uh, six, or 5 or 6, condemned. They are bringing them before a court to get a sentence, and they were blaspheming the name of Jesus Christ. Now, in the background of James all the way up to A.D. 70. Now, you've got to remember, James is the very first book. He's writing to the very first Christians maybe 15 years after Jesus ascended. I mean, we have the very first group of Christians in the very first church, and James is writing to them. And during that time, all the way up to A.D. 70, the Roman government administrated peace and justice in their cities, but they had a group of people that they let use their own laws if you lived under, in the Roman Empire in the time James was writing and you walked into a city, there were Roman courts, but then there was a group of people over here who had their own courts because they had different set of laws that none of the Romans understood. They had to live by the Torah. And so these courts would be administrated by the, by the leading Jewish uh, people. The, you know, the, in their group, it would have been uh, the, the 10 elders that would be over the synagogue or, or other people like that. And so they had their own courts and they would administer and hold people to their own laws. And the only time they ever had to go to the Romans was if their court decided that the person before them merited a death sentence. And they did not have the authority to execute somebody, but they could go to the Romans and say, now this is the decision our court has made and we want you to validate our decision and we want you to carry out the sentence. You say, why are you telling, all us, telling us this? Well, I'm going to present, present an idea to you. I think these people were wealthy Jewish religious leaders who had great wealth and great influence and great power. And they were turning around and afflicting God's people. They had the same word. They believed in the same God. They had the same Torah. They were looking for the coming of a Messiah. And the only difference between these two groups was the Christians were saying, He's already come, and His name is Jesus. And it so incited this group that they began persecuting them and doing everything they could to destroy them. And here's what they'd been up to. Look at verses 4 through 6. The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fatten your heart in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He doesn't resist you. That's, that's, the, that's sort of like the litany of things that these people have been doing. You've stolen what's not yours. 
You have used those stolen gains to live a self-indulgent life. You are living wantonly and sensually against the laws of God. You have condemned God's righteous people unjustly in your courts. And your malicious oppression has impoverished God's righteous servants, and you've even put some of them to death unjustly. You've used your power and your wealth to abuse, oppress, and destroy someone who loves God and who is absolutely powerless to do anything to counter your influence and your wealth and your power in that court. Now, you have an example of something like this in the Old Testament. You have a very wealthy Jewish leader who wanted a vineyard. You remember this? He wanted a vineyard. He had amazing vineyards. He had so much land, but he wanted the vineyard of a faithful servant of God named Naboth. And so he goes to Naboth, and he says to Naboth, I want your vineyard. I'm the king. I want it. And Naboth said, king, I can't give you this vineyard. The law of God says that this was given to my family. It's got to stay in my family. And Naboth went home and pouted. And his dear wife, godly as she was, came to him and said, why are you weeping? And he says, Naboth. And she goes, are you kidding me? Naboth is why you're crying? You're the king. There's an easy way to solve this. If you want the vineyard and Naboth's in the way, then we can eliminate Naboth. Problem solved. No Naboth, no obstacle. And the king said to his wife, now that's brilliant. May the Lord bless you as you go about his business. I'm adding a few things to the Hebrew there. And here is a man who was slaughtered by a very powerful, wealthy Jewish leader who should have been the number one obeyer of the Torah over a piece of property. And James says to his readers, now that's what these people are doing to you. And they think they are secure. Look at verses 2 and 3. Their security would be in their possessions. And he says, let me talk to you about your possessions. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your vast wealth, your, your, your possessions aren't going to satisfy you. Your wealth isn't going to sustain you. Look at your wealth. Your gold and silver have corroded and your and, and they will be evidence, the corrosion will be the evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Your treasure will not sustain you when the Lord comes. You have done this in the day of the Lord. And so here they have this gold, they have this wealth, they have this power, they have this influence. And God says, or, or James says to the people, now wait a minute, I want you to know something They look so powerful and they look so influential and one word whispered in the ear of the court changes everything. But let me tell you something. Moses said that there needed to be two witnesses for God to execute a death sentence on somebody and I'm going to give you the two witnesses that have been talking to God. And James says, let me assure you, there have been two reliable witnesses and their cries have entered into the ears of the Lord. 
Witness number one are the wages they've stolen from you. Those wages are giving testimony over and over and over and over again to the Lord that these people who have done this to you are unjust. And then James says, and by the way, your own cries have come to the Lord and he's heard them. Now that's really important if you want to put iron in your soul because sometimes you cry out to the Lord and you cry out to the Lord and you cry out to the Lord and you beg the Lord for relief and you beg the Lord for, for removal of, of the pain and the agony of the oppression and you ask God to spare and, and it seems like the more you pray, the, the, the more silent it becomes. And James says, now I want you to know something. I'm going to give you a word from God that God wants you to know. God says to you this, I hear your cry. It comes into my ears. Now, there is something that God is going to do when that cry comes into his ear. Look, if you will, at the end of verse 4. How is God described? He is the Lord of hosts. That's an interesting title of God. The only other time it shows up in our New Testament is in the book of Romans. And Paul quotes in the book of Romans a text out of Isaiah. So this title that James is bringing up and putting in front of these people who are being crushed by their oppressors is a title that in the Old Testament every Jew would have understood. And it it means like this. This is the title. The word hosts is the word for armies, not just army, plural armies. And in the Old Testament, when God's people were being oppressed, the prophets would come to them and they would say to them, now you need to remember something about the God you serve and the God who loves you and the God who is your God. He has armies. He is the Lord of armies. And there are places in the Old Testament where the eyes that can't see into the realm that really matters are opened. And you get to see a tiny glimpse of the kind of armies that God has at his disposal. This isn't just a figure of speech that, that James is throwing out there to kind of comfort you and say, oh, it'll be okay. You know, the Lord of armies is going to take care of you. No, no, no. There are real armies. You remember in the Old Testament when the prophet had a servant And the king was mad at the prophet because he wouldn't tell him what he wanted to hear. And so he sent a troop of soldiers to arrest the prophet. And the servant said, what are we going to do? And and the prophet said, don't worry. And then he looks outside, and then there's another troop of soldiers. And pretty soon there's soldiers, the king's soldiers, in hostile array against this little hut where the prophet and his servant are. And, and, And the servant is just beside himself. And finally the prophet says, hey, come outside. And he says, Lord, open his eyes. And for a brief moment, the eyes are opened, and he looks out on the hills, and the hills are like on fire. There's so much light blazing out of those hills, and where that light is coming from is a massive army of spiritual beings that is about to bring all kinds of trouble to this little tiny army with little toothpicks that looks so powerful. I mean, those little swords and those little spears look like little toothpicks, 
and maybe a little cardboard shield that somebody painted on, and, and, and here's this massive army of, of celestial beings. And James says, no, that's, that's who's hearing your cry. When you're oppressed, when you are being cast down, when you are being crushed, God knows and God sees. And there is a day coming when he is going to bring those armies. These people are doing that in the day of the Lord. That's an interesting little phrase that James uses. He's actually not saying that they're doing that in you're sort of laying up all these treasures for that coming day. He's saying, no, no, no. You're doing it right now, and the time that you're doing it is in the day of the Lord. And we're going to come back and look at that phrase, but let me just give you a little teaser on that phrase. There, there is a promise that every Old Testament prophet made to Israel, and here's the promise. Just wait for the Lord. Just wait for the Lord. Hey, I know. I get it. I see what's going on. Just wait for the Lord. No, 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 no. Wait a second. Don't despair. Just hang. Just wait for the Lord. And, 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 and in unpacking the just wait for the Lord, they keep talking about a day. Just wait for the day of the Lord. Sometimes it's called the last days. And so all through your Old Testament, you, you hear about prophets looking at God's people, and they are talking about an age. There is an age coming, and that age is going to belong to the Lord And what he's going to do in that age is two things. When he comes, he's going to deliver his people and he's going to judge his enemies. And you're going to know that age, you're going to know that day because Messiah will appear. Now, think about this. James chapter 1 verse 1. We have a reference to Christ assembling the spiritual Israel together, what do you know about that? Messiah has already come, so you're in that day. That day that the prophets were talking about, that's right now. We are in that day. Don't think of that day as a 24-hour period. There are many times in the Bible where the word day does mean 24 hours, like in Genesis 1. But there are other times where it means an age. And here's the age you're in. And what you know about the age is that Messiah has come once and he's going to come what? Again, and you're in that in the middle part. That's why he's going to talk to you about a farmer and early rains and late rains. We're going to get to that the next time we look at James 5, all right? So here's what's going on. James is looking at people who are being pummeled, they're being oppressed, and he's saying to them, I want to put some iron in your soul. And here's the iron. God has given me some words to give you. And the words are this. The Lord of armies has heard the cry of your stolen wages, and he's heard your cry as the oppressors have been taking away everything from you, and it's entered into his ears, and he is warning these people of coming judgment. Now, there's one final thing, and we'll be done. There is a merciful opportunity there's a merciful opportunity, even for these people, even for the oppressors. 
And the, uh, the, the merciful opportunity is the first two words of chapter 5, verse 1. Come now. Come now. Can I take you to a text where that phrase occurs? It's in the book of Isaiah. Would you turn there? Find the book of Isaiah in your Bible and go to chapter 1. And listen to this word of grace that God gives to even people like these oppressors. James said, come now. And God said to people just like that, doing the very same thing. The people that you're about to read about in Isaiah are doing the very same thing that these wealthy Jewish oppressors are doing. And here's what God said to them. Come now, verse 18, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, you've been murdering people. You've been martyring my people. You've been taking away their life. You've been stealing their possessions. You've been dragging them out of their homes. You've been putting them under unbelievable pressure, and they haven't resisted you. They haven't fought back. And God says to them, come now. Let's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, even if they're like that, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, even if you have in your sins spilled the blood of my righteous martyrs, they will become like wool. If you are willing and obedient you will eat of the good of the land. You say, well, Pastor Sam, that doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't, does it? So let me end with a story of a righteous one whose blood flowed red in the sands. You can read a story at the end of Acts chapter 6 and all of chapter 7. He was the very first martyr ever or one of the first martyrs in the Christian church. And he was put to death, not by Romans. He was put to death by Jews who hated him for what he was saying. Those Jews were dragging people out of their houses. One of them got letters to go city by city to find people like Stephen and drag them out of their homes and bring them before the courts and even put them to death. And when Stephen was kneeling down, about to be stoned, he did not resist them. He opened his mouth and he rehearsed the history of God to them. And then he prayed. He prayed. Well, he was delivered, wasn't he? No. Man, those stones fell. And all of this was being orchestrated by one man named Paul. We know him as Paul, but his Jewish name was Saul. Come now, Paul. Come now, Saul. Let's reason together. 
even if you did this to my people, your sins can be forgiven. And there came a day where the Apostle Paul humbled his heart and he was redeemed and forgiven and he became a preacher of the very gospel that was being preached by a man he put to death. And in his preaching, Stephen also preaches. I've often wondered what the reunion between Paul and Stephen would be like in heaven. You ever thought about that? Um, this is this is just sanctified imagination. Okay, you don't write a book about it or anything. But have you thought about that? I mean, here's here's Paul, and he's you know the trumpets are blowing. Hey, Paul's Paul's coming home. He's coming in. This is awesome. And Stephen's like, I want a word with him. God, can I have five minutes with him before he gets in the gate? I have some counseling I want to do. I got some on my chest I want to get off. Do you think that happened? I think, this is my sanctified imagination, I think there was a glorious reunion between these two. And Steve was like, this is awesome. Isn't our God so good? Paul, if you hadn't stoned me, you might not have ever got saved. And I know the stones hurt for like, you know, 15 minutes, but man, guess what? I am so glad that God allowed me to go through that because every person you ever led to the Lord, guess who's getting credit for it? Not you, me. And, you know, I have to admit it, I was kind of happy when the Lord allowed your head to get lopped off. Now, he probably didn't say that. But you, you see what I'm saying? I don't think there's any lost love between Peter and, or I'm sorry, between Stephen and Paul because when redemption happens, you see the whole picture. And folks, I don't know who's doing that in your life today. I, I don't know whose the oppressors are, but, but some of you have oppressors in your heart and in your life, and some of them might even be believers. And they are doing and have done to you unimaginable things. You've suffered unimaginable loss at their hands. And you come to somebody like me, and all we have is words. And we say very helpful things to you like, just get over it. Just read your Bible. Just pray. And your spirit is crushed. And there are things that happen to you you don't even know how to talk about. And they might have happened to you in your home or they might have happened to you somewhere and your heart is crying out. And some helpful person like me comes along and says, all things work together for good, brother. You know? And then you open up James and you start reading chapter 5 and God says to you, now let me give you, let me give you some comfort from me. Your cries that you've cried in your bed every night, I've heard every one of them. They've come into my ears. I saw what they did to you. It didn't escape my notice. That abuse that happened didn't escape my notice. And if you will trust me, if you will trust me, not only will I deliver you, but I will do the right thing in bringing judgment. Now, folks, that comfort will keep you going 
that comfort will keep you going way more than anything I could give you. You know, sometimes our comfort and our help is there, and we need to help people navigate those kind of things. Please don't read that as I don't want, we, I, we don't want to help people. We do want to help people. But we acknowledge that our help is just human help. And if that's all we give you, then there's no strength. And maybe you're one of the oppressors. Or maybe you've been beaten down so much that you just don't. And I would just say to you, hear the words of the Lord. And God says, come, let's talk. Let's reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, I can make them white as snow. Now, don't for a minute think that, you know, that doesn't mean there aren't human consequences. There are always human consequences to our sins. And sometimes those human consequences are hard, and they get in the way of our repentance. But God says, listen, I will sustain you in those human consequences if you will repent, and you will come to me. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Would you bow your head with me this morning?